So thanks to our producer's campaign to solicit questions from listeners, we have a very, very healthy list of questions. Yeah, we do. I'm looking at them now. Let's see how many we can do. Why did you both agree to create the podcast? You go first. My reason goes a little something like this. I very much love our producers. Mm -hmm. When they recommend we do something or they recommend you watch something or you listen to something, I typically do it. Mm -hmm. When they recommended that you and I get in touch and become friends, we did it. We got to know each other. When they said that, you know, there's a lot to your life. You'd be good at a podcast. I took them at face value. But the main reason I wanted to do the podcast is knowing what I already knew about you. I felt that the work needed to be recorded for posterity. There needed to be a record of everything you had done and everything your colleagues and all your partners had done on the ground. The work matters and Afghan culture and heritage matters. Mm -hmm. That's a big picture reason. That's lofty. My reason was the chance to work with you all from the beginning, you know, the producers and you. And that was it. It was like, okay, we're going to have a fun project. And you've all dragged me along throughout the whole process. I would say I felt a little like I was, <laughs> you know, resisting, putting my heels in a little bit. But I'm here. We're here. It was the chance to work with all of you. That's been the best part. Part B of my answer is, you know how I love social media. Mm-hmm. And it was a chance to be very active on social media. <laughs> Well, you and I both hate social media. Yeah, I think I'm being sarcastic. Right. Although I've become a little bit more open uh, and I'm putting myself out there more, especially on LinkedIn. Yeah. But it lends to that. It lends to LinkedIn. Here's a second question. I'm sure you prepare somewhat for each episode, but the conversations are clearly unscripted. How do you gauge the interest of your audience? You joke about having 12 listeners. When recording, are you envisioning family members, professional colleagues, history buffs, friends, bosses, former bosses, pundits, or just a faceless crowd of listeners? All right. I think that is a good question. Um, It's been mostly a faceless crowd of listeners, but I've been very conscious that I wanted anything I said to be 100% accurate. So I kind of worried a little bit about the deep specialists who might tune in This was a little bit validated for me after the first episode. I got a comment from somebody who was like, you were wrong about Alexander the Great. He wasn't killed. And I'm like, oh, all right. It was mostly, I didn't know what to envision in the listeners, all 12 of them. Sometimes, though, I did have to keep in mind people at the State Department who might listen that I stayed within the boundaries of what I could talk about. But you had my back on that. I didn't envision anyone. You know how they say, like, if you have stage fright and you're acting on stage, just picture everyone in their underwear or totally naked. (laughs) (laughs) I did the totally naked part. I couldn't picture anybody. I didn't want to picture anybody because I thought that that would make me nervous and would take away from the fact that I was just looking to you and talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted the feel to be two friends talking to one another about a serious thing. And so that's kind of how I did it. And we did joke a lot about having 12 listeners. And it's funny because when people wrote me about the podcast, they usually start with, hey, I'm one of your 12 <laughs> listeners. I too am a non-Buddhist. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> right. so I'm glad that that got a little bit of traction. Yes. Yeah. 
Laura, you are a cat lady. How did you manage for nearly <laughs> two years without a cat in your shipping container? I managed just fine because I would occasionally coax one of the many stray cats on the U.S. Embassy compound into my shipping container. Not for long term, maybe just a few hours. What did you feed them? I didn't feed them. I, oh, they were well-fed all over. There were feeding stations everywhere at the U.S. Embassy. So when I needed a little cat fix, I would coax one in and then push it out after a few hours. I managed just fine. You were in Afghanistan for over one year initially without returning to the U.S. How did you stay blonde? I actually did come home to the U.S., at Christmas time for two and a half weeks, and I saw my colorist. Very nice. Okay. What are your favorite Afghan dishes? Mantu. Yeah. Easy, right? Easy, easy. Mantu, any kind. Mantu, mantu, mantu. Cool. Yeah. Cool. What about cool. yours? My favorite Afghan dish is any korma, which is basically like an onion tomato stew base. Mm -hmm. And then it can have any sort of meat mm -hmm. or even spinach. Love it. Mm -hmm. Any korma mm -hmm. is great. Yep, yep. Do you know any Mullah Nasruddin jokes? I do, but they're yeah, maybe say who that is. Off color jokes for the podcast. A uh, little bit dirty. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know his dirty ones. I only know his kind of funny slapstick ones. Should say that Mullah Nasruddin, in my part of the world, in Turkey and Greece, he's known as Nasruddin Hoca, and he lived in the 1200s. He is attached to a lot of Sufi traditions. He was a philosopher, uh, made a lot of social commentary. In Turkey, they consider him having been born in Central Turkey, but I know that in Central Asia, they say, no, 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 he was actually born in Buhara. Mm -hmm. So with a little bit of that context, tell us a Nasruddin Hoca joke or a Mullah Nasruddin joke. I don't actually know any. I just made that up. I'll tell you my favorite, but it also <laughs> happens to be one of the more commonly known ones. Yeah. So, Is it dirty? No, nah, it's not dirty. It's just typical Nasruddin humor. So Nasruddin Hoja lives in this village, right? And one day the neighbor says, gosh, I need a donkey. I'm going to go borrow Nasruddin's donkey. And the neighbor you know, walks up to Mullah Nasruddin's house and knocks on the door. Mullah Nasruddin opens the door and the neighbor says, um, hey, I really need your donkey to you know, get some of my goods to the market and sell them. Can I borrow your donkey today? But Nasruddin didn't really want to give up his donkey that day, and he didn't like that neighbor very much anyway. And so he's like, oh, I already loaned out the donkey to somebody else. And just at that moment, the donkey brays. And the neighbor says, wait a minute, the donkey's here in your house. And Nasruddin goes, who are you going to believe, me or the donkey? You know, <laughs> that's the kind of like tenor and tone of the Mullah Nasruddin jokes. <laughs> are there any titles for episodes that you decided not to use? <laughs> Boy, are there ever. Yes, there <laughs> Do you are. remember any of them? Yeah. yeah, I do. I think we were going to call episode five, Better Than Sex. The Mess I Knock episode. One of the Mess I Knock episodes. Yeah. 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 I think it ended up being called Caravan of Coochies. Yeah, I think so. We had to tone it down. And then the follow-up episode on Mess I Knock, I wanted to call it Hot Mess I Knock, but you would not permit <laughs> no, that. No, I would not. 
I think we were also going to call episode 26 Pedal to the Metal. Yeah. And instead, it ended up becoming Matt Damon at AOL.com. Yeah. We have some travel questions, too. Has your extended travel experience led you to a packing strategy? Do you only take carry-ons? No, can't take carry-ons because I can't fit enough stuff in. So example, usually we'll travel to multiple places, different climates. Let's say in the middle of winter in Kabul, it's actually quite hot. I need more space, need more different kinds of shoes. They can't all fit into a carry-on. What about you? Whether I take a carry-on or check-in luggage, I have a ruthless packing strategy. I approach packing kind of like a Tetris game. <laughs> Generally, I like to travel light, even if I'm checking something in. I don't want to bring too many things. Yeah. This isn't so much what I'm bringing, but how I'm packing it. I try to fit things logically in a part of the suitcase that they belong in mm-hmm. so that I know if I have to open it and pull something out on the fly, I kind of know generally where it is. Okay, very organized. Tip number one, never start packing your suitcase before you have laid out the entire inventory that is going in the suitcase. Number two, it sucks to pack shirts, pants that wrinkle, and then you show up and everything is just kind of super wrinkled and tattered. Yeah. So here's what you do. Those bags that dry cleaning comes in, Yeah. never throw those bags out. And then when you pack, for example, dress shirts, fold them into nice rectangles and slip one inside the dry cleaning bag, slip another one on top of that, slip another one onto the lower half of the dry cleaning bag and fold them on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of shocking sometimes that you travel you know, halfway around the world mm-hmm. and your bag looks like it's you know been blown to smithereens and then you open it up and inside the dry cleaning bags everything's kind of wrinkle free and pristine good to know try it yes laura what's your preferred airline somebody asked yeah preferred airline hmm i'm going to defer that question okay (laughs) the state department told you not to answer that (laughs) Yes, strictly forbidden. (laughs) Although I have very much a preferred airline. I'll keep that one to myself. That's fine. That's fine. I'll tell you what is not my preferred airline, and that is Kyrgyzstan's (laughs) former air traffic. Who came up with that name for an airline? I flew them a couple times. Definitely not my favorite. Next question. Do you have a tried and true method to cope with jet lag? Oh, I do indeed. It involves six milligrams of melatonin, not more, no more than a glass of red wine and forcing myself to stay awake till at least 10 p.m. Usually can get over jet lag of an eight or nine hour time difference, sometimes a 10 hour time difference within two or three days. What are your top three museums in the world to visit for culture and history? The ones I haven't visited yet. You know what is a dark horse museum that I love? It is the Museum of Dubai. Why? For such a cosmopolitan international city that Dubai is, they have this museum about the history of Dubai that is straight out of 1975. It's got dioramas, stuffed figures doing seafaring and purling and examples of Bedouin life, activities that would be 
what life was like in Dubai before it became this enormous international city with high rises and everything air conditioned. I learned so much about the history of Dubai from this not very modern museum. I recommend that museum to anybody who goes to Dubai. Don't be discouraged by the dioramas. Enjoy the display and learn something. The information is very accessible. So that's one of my favorite museums. My second favorite museum in the whole world is the Tenement Museum in New York City, Lower East Side. Love it, love it, love it. Must go. And I'll just mention one. I was blown away by the National Museum of History and Archaeology in Dublin. Oh. Because of the Viking artifacts, the early Christian artifacts. The Bronze Age. Oh, my God. But more than anything, the wing with the bog bodies. They have these spectacular bog bodies that were taken out of these, you know, swampy, cold bogs in Ireland. Mm Mm-hmm incredibly preserved, thousands of years old, where they were even able to pull out hair follicles. Mm -hmm. You can see the pores on their skin. Mm -hmm. You can see the wrinkles around what's left of their eyes. And they even did forensics on the content of their stomachs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to figure out what diet was like back then. What a museum. Assuming peaceful conditions, in which country would you like to spend a few months to visit historic sites, enjoy cultural immersion, get to know the landscape, either for work or pleasure? Oh, man, there's so many. Okay, I've never been to Morocco. Send me to Morocco for a few months. Would love to explore that. This is not a country, part of a country. Sicily is endlessly fascinating. Those are just two off the top of my head. Very cool. And we have a number of pretty substantive and serious questions as well. Why don't we jump into some of those? Yep. And this is exclusively for you. Mm -hmm. It seems for Laura, this became much more than just a job. She really fell in love with Afghanistan. I want to know what makes it so special that it feels so different from any other heritage site she's worked on. I don't know how to answer this, actually. I think it's just a kind of general commitment and passion I try to bring to work that I do. And it just so happens that the last 10 plus years, my work is mostly focused on Afghanistan. And so I've just directed that kind of intention of how I do my work to there. But as we've talked about, it's a difficult place to love. Well, one of your first digs was on Cyprus. If you had spent 10 years on Cyprus doing this kind of work, would you have the same intense feelings that you do now about Afghanistan, for example, or Armenia? Yeah, it's hard to say. There's maybe something about what feels so at risk in Afghanistan that makes the work or my impression of the work a little more precious seeming. This is really hard to answer. Um, I don't know. I have to give that more thought. Mm. I can't answer it from the perspective of archaeology, but I can answer it from the perspective of Afghanistan that right. there are so many similarities with Armenia of a country and a place and a people that have been in an in-between space between empires. Mm-hmm. And they've seen so much tragedy. Mm-hmm. 
when you have countries where imperial borders are going back and forth and people are dislocated and there's empires rising and falling and cities rising and falling Mm -hmm. and so much destruction, there is something really special about working to unearth that heritage that has remained and preserving it. And the more you find, the more excited you get because you realize that even destruction can't And even violent wars and dislocations and imperial collapse can't definitively erase humanity's traces. And I find that really special about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's profound. I can't add to that. That's a great answer, George. Thanks. What does Lori think is the most important site or thing that should be preserved in Afghanistan? I mean, it's very difficult to answer, but it would be the National Museum because within the walls of the National Museum are examples of the breadth and diversity of Afghan heritage. So if we could save that museum and what's in it, then we would be saving examples of evidence and artifacts and all kinds of expressions of the mix of Afghan heritage. Uh, There's another just one thing question. Actually, two more. Yeah. Laura, if you could take home one piece or one artifact from Afghanistan, whether in a museum or not, what would that be? And, and I have a comment here in my notes from our producer. Uh, this would be illegal. No, she's right. She's right. I've never bought a silk carpet from Afghanistan. I've always wanted a silk one. I have like 20 Afghan carpets, but none of them is silk. If I were to go back and I could come home with one thing, I would buy a super high-end handmade silk carpet. What is the one, and you can only pick one highlight from your work in Afghanistan over the years. Uh Uh-huh. And what is the one, you can only pick one, low light from your work? Okay, yeah, this is tough. You can only pick one? Okay, highlight. Maybe my first helicopter ride to Ghazni. I would say, because a helicopter doesn't fly at a very high altitude. So you get this beautiful view of the landscape. And it was very eye-opening to me. A low light, this isn't my work specifically, although it directly impacts my work. It's got to be the fall of Kabul to the Taliban on August 15th. Yeah, I'm still reeling from that. We have a listener who wrote, that they have not listened to all the episodes yet, so they're not sure if we've already answered this, but it's about Bamiyan. Laura, have you been there? What does Bamiyan, the area around the Buddhas, look like now? And what can possibly be done going forward? Mm -hmm. I have never been to Bamiyan for reasons that we've never actually talked about. It's a little bit of an absence for me. I always wanted to go, but I could never justify asking to go to Bamiyan and all the resources it takes for me to move around Afghanistan, you know, like security and transport. You have to really have a justification that is directly tied to your work. 
And it would seem that Bamiyan would directly tie to my work, but it didn't because there were so many other countries, the Italians and the Koreans and the Japanese, who were deeply involved in the preservation of Bamiyan. You know, it had such international attention that the United States took more of a position with respect to cultural preservation. The United States State Department, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, we're going to put some attention on sites that are not getting so much attention by other international donors. So that's why I never went to Bamiyan. I don't know what the place looks like now. The niches where the Buddha stood are empty, as they have been for almost 21 years. And what can be done with the remnants? Well, really, nothing can be done with the remnants of the Buddhas that were there. Sort of replicas could be put in their place, but that's probably not advisable. Have you been to Bamiyan, George? No, I've not. I've not. So, yeah, maybe one day I'll get there. Laura and George, you talked about what you would take if you had to flee your home with one suitcase. Now that some time has passed, can you answer the question again, perhaps more seriously? What is that one thing you might take? I answered that in some detail because I was struggling with what I would do if I were in that kind of a situation. And I think I caught you off guard by asking you the question at the time. Mm -hmm. And you had jokingly said, my face cream. Right. I don't feel like it was necessarily a joke for you to say that because, well, I'm going to tell you a short story. Back when I was in college, Yugoslavia had fallen apart and the civil war was raging in Bosnia and in other parts of the former Yugoslavia. There was a huge outflow of refugees, particularly from Bosnia and some of the parts of Croatia. And refugees had flooded cities like Zagreb, for example. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading a book called Balkan Express by Slavenka Drakulic, a Croatian Mm -hmm. author who writes on a lot of social issues. And she had talked about a Croatian refugee who had left her home to go to Zagreb with very few things that she was able to carry. And she was being criticized by people in Zagreb for bringing a pair of high heel shoes. Mm -hmm. Like, why do you need that? You're a refugee. And what the refugees' response is, is like, I'm still a human being with things that I care about and things that I need to bring that may seem unimportant to you at this point, but they are what I need to anchor myself in my future. Mm -hmm. So how do you answer the question now that you have a little bit more time to think about it? I'm just trying to imagine you have a situation where you really can only grab one thing. I have a folder of precious letters that I've received over the years from my mom, from siblings, from just various people who've been important in my life. And so if I had to take one thing, it would be that file folder of old letters and the face cream. (laughs) (laughs) But the face cream, I mean, yes, I I said that in a joking way because I really didn't know what to say when we were recording that and we were riffing on that question. But It's something small, it's easy to carry, and it would perhaps just provide a sense of normalcy to me in what would be a very abnormal circumstance, like maybe a little bit of comfort that I could use this cheap face cream that I use all the time. Maybe it would just be like the woman who brought her high heel shoes. 
Here's one, George. What yeah. did you all learn about each other by doing this podcast together? Well, I learned something that I needed to learn, which is that, and I learned this from you, Lori, which is that I can't take care of other people if I don't take care of myself first. And so true. you see that in a way that I wasn't seeing before this. That's something that was kind of an unexpected discovery, thanks to spending so much time with you. And, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing is that I got to learn more about our respective sensitivities. <laughs> yeah. Your sensitivity is rightfully and expectedly that we can't go for the jugular when it comes to U.S. policy in the here and now because... That's not what our podcast was ever exactly. about anyway. Yeah. yeah. I think we had laid that out early on. That was not what we were doing. It wasn't to critique decisions that were beyond our control. There's enough people out there in the world who want to critique stuff. Yeah. So we'll leave it to the others to do that. So George, here's a question for you. You have a small child. Would you be willing to go work in an active war zone? Do you have a very understanding spouse? It depends how active the war is. If it was like mm-hmm. Afghanistan has been, yes. Syria, during the height of the civil war, not necessarily, because that was just way too dangerous. Do I have, have an understanding spouse? I used to. I think that now that we have a two-year-old, that understanding has fizzled. <laughs> and rightly so. I have higher risk tolerance than other people. I will tell you a funny story. Mm-hmm. The person with the least risk tolerance is my mother. Oh. Who frets anytime I visit a country that she's not readily familiar with or has been to herself. For example, she would get worried enough when I would go to Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan, and those are totally safe countries. When I went to Afghanistan, I only told her as I boarded the plane in Dubai. (laughs) I wanted to minimize her grief as much as possible. Yeah. When I came back, and I was in touch with her the whole time, but when I came back, her response was, my eye exploded. (laughs) And that was like a typical Mediterranean mother's guilt that she lays on her kid, which is that, you know, your life choices are killing me. (laughs) Yeah. So that is yet another consideration in addition to I have a two-year-old now, but I still have a high risk tolerance and I think you do too. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I won't go over the speed limit when I'm driving, but I will go to Afghanistan. Right. Jamal texted me a question. With the increasing pace of globalization, does Laura as an archaeologist see diversity in the world vanishing? Do we run the risk that everything is becoming the same? What historical patterns does she see? Wow. Um, That's a big question. Do I think diversity is vanishing? No, I don't. Why? Well, I have to really give more considered thought to that, but my intuitive gut response to that is like, no, I don't think so. Are we running the risk that the world is becoming the same or very similar due to globalization? I am one who is already inclined, just from training in anthropology, et cetera, to want to look at what is unique and different in groups and why those differences are there, not as separators, but more as unique traits. I'm already predisposed to identify diversity 
I don't think it's going away. Maybe it's just reshaping yeah. um, or, or taking different forms. I, think I differ a little bit in my perspective in that, I mean, here in the U.S., for example, we're in a period of our history where we're having some pretty serious fights and battles over our identity and our vision of a country. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has come with these political and social battles is that we are becoming more sensitive about our diversity and more respectful about broader diversity out there, whether it's mm-hmm. about race mm-hmm. or gender and, you know, and so on. Sometimes I think what we are experiencing here about that is a blip in an overall trend, which is that slowly but surely we are all hurtling towards the future where life is going to look like the crew of the Starship Enterprise, (laughs) where we all have different features and maybe different coloring and maybe we Mm -hmm. play different roles. And yet we all have to kind of have 90% of and what we are be the same so that we can function together on a starship called Mm -hmm. Earth. I worry that over the long run, we're going to lose some of the things that make different cultures, different people truly unique. Mm -hmm. And that'll be something that archaeologists in a thousand years are going to have to sort through and decide if that's what happened to us. Interesting. How would you describe this period, culturally speaking, in which we find Afghanistan? Is it post-colonial reconstruction? Is it a pre-Civil War era? Is it the demise of a civilization overtaken by something undetermined? Right. I don't know how to answer that. Right now, any of these can be the possibility of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It could be that we are talking about the country on the eve of yet another civil war if the Taliban isn't able to rule the place mm-hmm. with stability and capacity. It could be a sign that for generations to come, there will be a lot less modernity and Western influence in Afghanistan. So the demise of a certain kind of civilizational influence, you know, at the expense of the Taliban's brand of Islam. I love the phrase post-colonial reconstruction because when we say reconstruction, we tend to think of what the U.S. was doing after 9-11. Mm-hmm. But the Taliban, in their eyes, are now reconstructing the country in a post-colonial way because they see us as having done something colonial. And so it's a really yeah. profound question that we can't answer here definitively. But I think that Afghanistan can right now be all of these or none of these. Mm-hmm. What is the Taliban's vision over the long term for the country? And that vision will determine the path this country takes and which one of these happens to be the case. What do you think? If their position of power persists, which is an open question, I like this option of post-colonial reconstruction and thinking about the idea of what post-colonial means and to whom and that the Taliban may have their own view of what reconstruction of Afghanistan looks like. That's a really complicated question. And I'm not trying to just deflect it because I don't know how to answer it, but I need days to think about a thoughtful answer. It's a reminder that history marches on, you know, and that we too are a blip in human history. And, And that's the irony that as an archaeologist, as a heritage specialist, you are trying to arrest the ravages of time in preserving a monument. And yet history marches on. 
It does. And so one day what we leave behind, archaeologists are going to be rummaging through it and trying to answer questions about what we were doing and what we were trying to accomplish. And that's fascinating. I've always said half-jokingly that the archaeological legacy of 20 years of U.S. and allies' occupation of Afghanistan would be plastic water bottles and HESCO barriers. Wow. But that's half-joking, but it's also half-profound. If the Monuments Woman podcast can give us cliff notes on what one needs to know about our government, the effects of cultural dissemination after war, its entangled follow-through of cultural restoration, the better we can teach the current generations and the next generations how to understand and how to care about Lori's experience and story. The fundamental question this listener is asking is, what should our takeaway be of your experience over Mm -hmm. the past 10 plus years? Just from my perspective, and I'd welcome your perspective on this, George, is that fundamentally recognition of the significance of culture, both as a tool for bridge building, for understanding people. It can also be used in bad and wrong ways, but that the consideration of culture writ large, that includes heritage, that includes lived culture today, needs a seat at the table in all discussions, in all consideration, in all foreign policy development, in all war planning. I think that's the basic takeaway. That's a beautiful way of saying it, right? Because you've said in a couple occasions in the podcast that culture must have a seat at the table because culture is what binds people together. Yeah. I've observed as Kabul fell and as so many people left that one of the things many Afghans pined for were these kind of cultural things that they wouldn't be able to access anymore whether it was the instruments they left behind at the National Academy that they used to play, you know, beloved folk songs or artifacts at the National Museum that they worried about being left behind. Mm. You know, those kinds of things. Or in the case of Jamal, who talked to us about his mother's love of poetry. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Let's end with a lighthearted question, if you will. I fear that we've gotten too heavy. Yes, let's lighten it up. Okay. Oh, it's about our theme song, uh, This Love. Yep. This Love was written by Ariana Delawari, a really wonderful Afghan-American artist, singer-performer. People should check out one of her older albums, Lion of Panjshir, where she also sings Afghan folk music in Dari and Pashto, and it's really great. So the question is, This Love is such a great theme song. What other songs would you consider using for soundtrack? David Bowie, Young Americans. Ooh. Jimi Hendrix, but I don't know the name of the song, so scratch that. <laughs> you go. This Love is a gorgeous theme song. Yeah. There's, like, for example, Rattlesnake by St. Vincent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to channel some of the animals that appeared in our podcast. Uh, Paper Planes by MIA. Tomorrow Never Knows by Danielle Dax, her version, not the Beatles version. Danielle Dax is a wildly, wildly underappreciated 80s artist, and people should check out her version of Tomorrow Never Knows and anything else she's done. Ornaments of Gold by Susie and the Banshees. Things Fall Apart by Christina. 
which is actually a Christmas song, but is so apt for Afghanistan. Christina Aguilera? No, just Christina. <laughs> she was another 1980s female singer. You're dating yourself here. Weird. Yeah. Okay. What a bummer. I'm dating myself. But hey, that's cool. I'll also add to that Wild Horses okay. by the Rolling Stones, yeah. Condition of the Heart by Prince, Can't Do It Like Me by Shauna, who's from my hometown, Chicago. And I think I would probably also add yes. Yes. Okay. Zemestun, which means winter in Dari or Farsi. Zemestun by X-Band, an Iranian band. Yep. And gosh, you know, last but not least, and this is about your household and Frank in particular, Voulez-vous by Abba. <laughs> All right, on that theme, how about anything by Motley Crue? I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, but if it has a soundtrack and it starts with this love. Yeah. Yeah, let's end it with Motley Crue. Yeah, I think so. All right. Okay, we think we're done. Yeah, I think we are. And hey, thank you. Thank you for. Thanks, George. Yeah, what a journey, huh? We said our loving free. I think it's very appropriate to thank all of our listeners who have spent a lot of time with us. We're thankful that you lent an ear to Laura's story, to the importance of the work. And if you like the podcast, we hope that you're going to tell other people about it. We hope that you're willing to write a review and just please spread the word. We've been not doing very much marketing, if at all. And uh, we hope to have even more people discover it and listen to it. So thank you to all of you for being part of our story. This show has been produced by Christian D. Brun and May 11 Projects. It was recorded by Audavita Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song, This Love, was written by Ariana Delawari, featuring Salar Nader. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.